Okay, so so welcome welcome to our lunch debate um, here today. We uh, gave the lunch debate the inspiring title "Europe: Back to the Future of a Political Project," and I'm uh, absolutely delighted to host today uh, Ulrike Gero. Uh, Ulrike is. Um, the founder and the director of the European Democracy Lab, and um, she will tell us about um, her, her big project, which is about um, founding a European Republic. I think you have already uh, a founding date uh, envisaged um, where the European Republic will be procla proclaimed from a number of balconies across Europe, and you will tell us about that. Um, and um, uh, following, uh, I, I think, this, uh, this vision in this presentation, there will be uh, a discussion uh, by uh, Adrian Schout. Adrian Schout is a senior fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands and uh, a visiting fellow here at Bruegel. And if we could get the sound a little bit better quality, that would be great, because there's a lot of echo. Um, that's what I meant. <laughs> so, so, so Adrian uh, is, of course, uh, also an expert on the European Union, has written many, many books on EU governance, better regulation, um, improving the working of EU agencies, improving economic and monetary union. Um, and last but not least, there's, of course, all of you, the audience, who are all here based in Brussels. You all are experts on various aspects of European integration. Uh, and I'm sure you all will, will have um, ideas about how the future of the European project should look like. And so we do want to bring you in after perhaps no more than half an hour for the, for the three of us here. Um, so that you know we can have a dialogue uh, with you and discuss uh, discuss these issues in, in some detail. I think Ulrike, without much further ado, um, welcome, and I look forward to your first 10-15 minutes of presentation. Thank you. So uh, thanks to Guntram, thanks to Bruegel, thanks to you coming over a lunch discussion. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, I'm nearly emotional because um, I'm a very good friend of um, Jean-Pierre Ferry, who founded the whole thing. Uh, I remember when we were setting up Rügel in this Franco-German declaration in 2003. There's still a lot of echo here. Um, and uh, I've been seeing and observing Rügel for whatever, 15 years now with uh, Andre Zapir and all this great work which has been done here. So it's, um, it's, it's a big moment to be back here. And it's especially back, uh, doesn't work? Because um, I stepped into the office here and I saw this fiscal federalism, okay, no, the, let's stay here for a moment. This fiscal federalism paper that Randall Henning would write in 2012 already. So I feel like, and we had a short coffee discussion with Guntram over this, we are hanging with the ever same questions in the European crisis as always, yeah? And um, so 
it's a little bit that brings you up that if you have been seeing, like me, the Maastricht Treaty making, the whole evol evolution that Europe took over 27 years, this sort of never ever closer union goal we had, and we are not coming to it, let alone that we are basically moving away from this ever closer union goal since ever we are in the crisis. And today, Italy, we will speak a little bit about Italy, but I'm not going into the technicalities of this, you know, pay for the Italian sort of game. That's not the issue here. What I was trying to do when you look at this crisis, um, I picked this from an <coughs> artist who merged, we cry about the crisis, yeah, and I thought like this is really expressing what I felt when two years ago I wrote this book, Why Europe Needs to Become a Republic, a Political Utopia, and I wrote this, I'm um, very happy to say, I wrote this as a book of anger. Yeah? It was in the midst of, after this 2012 genuine economic and monetary report of the five presidents, nothing had happened. We went from crisis to crisis, and I felt like now I leave the European bubble because Europe is not coming together. I wrote a book out of anger, Why Should Europe Become a Republic? And then I wanted to leave and become an academic. I became an academic, I'm a professor in Austria now. But the book came back as a boomerang. It was just like I wanted to leave the whole thing, and then the book came back as a boomerang. And what I tried to do, and it's especially interesting to do this in the midst of Brussels, so in the midst of the Brussels bubble, um, because I wanted to write a book which is appealing to people, which is appealing to the citizens, which we are now trying to reach out to, the citizens of Europe. And that's why I entitled the whole book Republic, because if you look at this, the book was sort of um, conceptualized in the midst of 2012 European crisis. We would be burning the European flags, if you remember. We had Stefan Issel empört euch. I mean, Europe was not doing well, and it's still not doing well. And so the idea was, what can I capture in terms of sentiments? Because we, you remember all, we wanted to, to find a new narrative. Yeah. Now we need to refund Europe, all these speeches from Macron. But we wanted to look for something emotional that triggers the European citizens for the European project. And we never found it so far. So um, I worked for Jacques Delors in the 90s, in the sort of better times um, of Europe. And Jacques Delors always said, you cannot fall in love with a single market. Europe needs a soul. And then, uh, at some point, I stumbled about a French historian who told me, uh, en France, on ne meurt pas pour la démocratie, mais on meurt pour la République. I don't know why I kept this sentence, but it was very telling to me, sort of, the republic is what? And whether you have studied democracy theory or not, you have an in-depth understanding that the republic cares, it's yours. You cannot be alienated because the republic is of the citizens, it's about your sovereignty, and it's about yours. And Res Publica, from Platon to Aristoteles to Cicero to whatever Kant, yeah, Rousseau is always the Republic. I will come back to this. In the meantime, I did some interesting um, empirical research, but I can show, show now empirically that the notion of Republic has a different emotional resonance board than United States of Europe. Why? Because United States of Europe is, the United States are somewhere there and they do integration, yeah. But European Republic is a framing that shifts the political project into the lap of the citizens. It's us. Yeah? And that was the basic idea of this paradigm shift, to shift it from, you know, we are always hanging with this wording of subsidiarity. The, United, the EU is doing this, but we, are, we have subsidiarity here, which is a perfect alienation between what you want in your garden and the EU is up where there. Whereas if you say European Republic, you have a paradigm shift through the semantics, which is the project belongs to the citizens. And today, 
confronting the EP elections to come, confronting the importance of the citizens, confronting the necessity that we will bring average voter turnout beyond the 50% ceiling which we had in the last EP elections, I think it's very, very important to take the notion of what citizenship means for serious. And so I come here at Bruegel, who is an, which is an institute about economics, more with a um, sort of discourse of political scientists and going deeper into what citizenship really means and what this notion of sovereignty really means, and Adrian will do the economic stuff. So now, because... Adrian is not an economist either. Okay, then, anyway, I brought you a monster, and I know it's uh, not so uh, funny to be in Brussels uh, with a monster, but if you look at the European trilogy, who you know better than I, which is a parliament which doesn't have right of initiative, a commission which is guardian of the treaty, but guardian of the treaty is the function of a court, with a council which decides without legitimacy, you can easily argue that in terms of democracy theory, the sui generis EU institutions are not democratic in the sense we understand intuitively our own national democracies. Very easy. So in these moments of time, with this populism arousing, blah, 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 I think there's easily to make the, stand, the statement that there's some world dying, which is the old EU world, and we feel that dying, and the new is still to come. And in the middle of this dying, and the, the new is not yet there, we are living in the times of the monster. <coughs> the quote is from uh, Gramsci of the prison journals, but it's um, quite funny. So because we didn't fix the system and because we're still hanging around with the ever closer union stuff and the fiscal federalism and whatsoever, we are now having this. And my central argument is we are having this because if you leave legitimized critics to um, the anti-parliamentarian forces because you are unable to reform this, the, the system, then basically what these people are saying is say right. When Boris Johnson is arguing, I'm not in control, and therefore we need to exit the EU, unfortunately he's right. He is not in control. Um, so the question is no longer, are you in favor of Europe or not? All these people are totally in favor of Europe. If you go down the speeches of Marine Le Pen, of Strache, uh, they are the best Europeans. They want Frontex, they want protection against terrorists, they are in favor of subsidiarity, <coughs> they want Europe of the fatherland. So being in favor of Europe or not being in favor of Europe is no longer the dichotomy. Yeah? And so in a way, if you uh, followed the um, Identitarian Party Congress in Fréjus, lastly in France, yeah? It's pretty evident that these so-called populists who criticize the EU are basically a better European team than all the other European forces because they can bundle their activities. Yeah, I mean this quite cynical, uh, but there is Trump's truth in it. The problem is that um, if we were, and this is the essence of my presentation, if we were to do one market, one currency, one democracy, if we were to aggregate the European democracy, then we had a different basic basis for fighting against populism. What I mean is, if they come through the council and then Orban is blocking here and Poland is blocking there and then Article 7 and all the issues that you know, then we have the feeling that country after country is falling into the trap of populism. But if you measure aggregated data, you will see that sort of European populism at large is somewhere between 25 and 35. So there is a huge majority out there, which is basically a two-third majority for a different democratic social Europe, if we were to measure it based on European citizen sovereignty, if we were to say it that way, 
one electoral body. Yeah? If we were one electoral body, if we had such a thing like a European electoral voting register in which all European citizens were registers from A to Z, one electoral body, we had a different political outcome. Uh, so my point is that the today's European system, which votes through the council majorly, does not reflect real people's majority. The real problem seems to me, and I'm traveling a lot and doing um, many conferences in, in all Europe, um, is that all these European forces which we now see, which are coming up, um, are not bundling. Yeah? So they are fragmented, which is, which is a feature of basically the 1920s also, yeah? with the left fragmented getting fragmented, you cannot bundle. And one, the, the thing is, how could you bundle all these very different forces from Macron, liberal, to Diem, Varoufakis, more socialist than liberal, whatever, but what could be a single uniting item under which these forces, which in the majority reflect the majority of the people, as we saw, would basically bring them together. And then I had the idea, let's do a very, in a way, apolitical claim, which is the European Republic is under construction. I already told you that uh, res publica, the common good, by the way, in its translation, Commonwealth, yeah, through the Putney Papers in 1647, John Locke translated Res Republic into Commonwealth. So Commonwealth is not a British Empire. Commonwealth is the English translation of the Republican thought. Uh, Res Publica is the organization of the public good. This is different because, as the chart from uh, Jacques Delors told you, you don't need to fall in love with a single market. A single market doesn't care, but the republic cares. So it's for the citizens, it's about the citizens, it's about the care for the citizens. So you have a very different resonance board if you say republic in re with respect to the management of the public good, with respect to the sovereignty of the people, no more alienation and with the sort of emo emotional resonance board that you can have. So what is a republic? It's very easy. And it was, again, my idea to bind all these forces behind one single claim. And the single claim is going back to Cicero, to the definition of a republic, which is those who consent to be on equal law, period. As you use equium is the Latin expression. Those who consent to be on equal law. Now... We have the EU law community. The EU law community, we are all told we have uh, uh, freedom for persons, uh, people, capital, goods, and services, right? The EU community essentially covers three of the four items. The single market is basically law convergence of goods. All goods manufactured in the EU can be sold everywhere. The euro currency union is basically law convergence of the currencies of, capi of capital, which is, uh, you know, from lira to shilling, now it's one euro, one euro, one euro. Services is basically the person's port of work, which is no discrimination by nation. Service regulation means that equal pay, yeah? But the only ones who are not covered under current EU law community um, laws, who are not convergent in law, are the citizens themselves. It's us as European citizens. So now, what is being a citizen? Citizens, in the definition of Pierre Rosan Vallon, who is a very big um, French sociologue, he has written a book which is Le Sacre du Citoyen, The Holiness of the Citizen. And what is the holiness of the citizen? It's basically a general, equal, uh, secret, and direct elections. The EP offers secret, general, and uh, Secret, general, and direct, it does not offer equal elections. 
And so in the terminology of Pierre Rosanvalon, Sacre du Citoyen, we as European citizens are not given the holiness of our citizenship, which is equal voting. One person, one vote, in essence. Yeah? Because we are not in a republic, because we are not, like Cicero said, consenting into equal law. Everything is equal in law, convergent, the goods, the capital, just not us as citizens in the things which are dear to us, which are voting, taxation, and the social. And out of this, I just was trying to formulate one single claim, which is about completion, one market, one currency, one democracy. A democracy means, means what? A democracy means much more than majority voting rules. A, major, a democracy means that the citizens in that democratic body must be equal in front of the law in the things which are touching the le sacre du citoyen, voting, taxation, and the social. Here you go. I brought you this nice picture because um, this is uh, Mrs. Republic. She hangs in uh, Jeux de Pomme, Paris. And I like it first because Mrs. Republic is a woman. So perhaps after the founding fathers, Europe needs some founding mothers. But she's nutrition, she's breastfeeding her citizens. Yeah? It's a very strong imago that the Republic cares. So we have an imago about an emotional residence board. Not for, it's, you know, I mean, Republica d'Italiana, République Française, Rechproche Politaire, Bundesrepublik. Because at a given moment in time, we consented, as it, remember Garibaldi, now I have created the uh, Italian Republic. Yeah, so the movement was always in the historical processes before us that some, like Volksstämme, like the uh, Rhineländer and Bavarians and Saxonians, were put together through a process of equal general secret voting, Paulskirche for Germany, 1844-48, into a republic under premises of equal law. So the only argument I'm making is what we could do in history, we should be able to do it now. We should claim as 500 million European citizens that we want to be equal in front of the law, as equal as the goods in the single market, as equal as the currencies in the, in, in the euro, as equal as our capacity to work under the uh, regulation law of services. We, are just, we just want to be equal as citizens. Can't be so difficult. If we go there, you know, this is just a very old map to amuse you in a way because um, it's very interesting that in the oldest map of Europe from 1588, Heinrich Bünting, she is um, in the National Archive in, in Vienna. And it's very interesting that, again, Europe is a woman, but uh, this uh, sort of picture of holiness at the moment in time when Respublica Christiana was divided into Protestants and, and Catholics, that the imago the continent needed was an imago of an organic Europe together. And it's interesting that all the people of Europe are placed in her. You can even have a libidous sort of interpretation of the map. But leaving it here, what I want to come to is principle of political equality is the condition for each and every democracy. So if we are talking now more than ever about European democracy, please note that in all the speeches of Macron, in European integration was yesterday. We are integrated in the market and we are integrated in the currency. Today's topic is European democracy. All the speeches of Macron, to just name his speeches, but also Juncker in the State of the Union, is unité européenne, démocratie européenne, souveraineté européenne. That's a very different wording. We are beyond integration. If we are talking citizen and if we are talking democracy, there's one necessary, though not sufficient, condition for democracy, which is the citizens are equal in the sacre du citoyen, which is electoral equality, fiscal equality, equal access to social rights. 
If we want to make this happen, one market, one currency, one democracy, say we do one euro, one IBAN, one social security number. Couldn't be so complicated. We have, we have it done previously. We did law convergence for the goods in the single market. We did law convergence in the capital in the euro. Let's now do something for the citizens, which has a symbolic sort of also resonance board for citizens, because I bet that things would change in Europe if everybody gets a European social security number or a European taxation number, because then you feel you're belonging to the republic. You could even do this in a way that those who are living now are not affected because it's complicated stuff to deal with, but you could do Stichtagsregelung, was what it? Cut-off date. Cut-off date, yeah, like we did cut-off dates, 1st of January 92 was single market, 1st January 2002 was um, the euro, from one day to the other, yeah? We could say 1st January 22nd, we introduce a European taxation and a European social security number. The citizens would send Europe. They would have the republic that cares. Yeah? And you could even say those who are living, because that's complicated negotiation stuff, are not affected, but everybody born after January 22nd would get this number. So you force convergence of citizens' rights over a period of 18 years. And around 200, 2040, we would be living. So now, to be a little bit, and I don't mean the cynical, but I give you the argument, which is my argument, why the things are not working. If we reason, and we all reason, in the big achievements of the past, market, single, uh, currency, and so on and so forth, and why did they take place? And I was around by then, as was Guntram. I worked for the Association for the Monetary Union of Europe, seeing Hilma Kopper and Agnelli and all these people doing, doing, doing the euro. And I saw all these people doing the single market, being with the law. But what was happening by then is, the argument had strong economic drivers. Those who are in active theory, who were driving the processes, report, we will create 5 million jobs, single market is super, we need to do it, and that was the argument. Freedom narrative, we do the single market, everybody will win. Then came the one market, one currency thing, oh, now we have one market, now we need one currencies because we cannot have all these carrots in the market with lira, gulden, blah, blah, blah. We had all the banks claiming for the market, the single currency with one argument, lose of transaction costs will be super, right? So the argument I'm making is we had strong economic drivers in the system, meaning the banks and the industries, to give us the market and the currency because these actors obviously have asymmetric access to power making and they used it to give us this. The difference to by then and now is that if I'm reasoning in European Republic with the, in essence, people, democracy, people are equal in front of the law, it would ultimately mean same access to social rights, same taxation for citizens, European unemployment scheme, I know Bruegel has been working on it, so it comes at a cost. Habermas says that the principle of political equality is basically the price you pay for democracy. So perhaps we are in a contemporary condition in which for the first time we need to argue a European project against economic efficiency. And that's basically what we are in. We are with Big Fat Germany, which is the German animal farm of Europe, dominating the whole, I say this as a German, um, dominating the whole structures. You are better informed than me about all this, you know, asymmetries about German uh, driving the Sparpolitik, blah, 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 things, all these flaws of democracy. But here's the thing, privilege holders don't renounce on privileges, but we will not make the European political project survive if some citizens are more equal than others. That is basically my single only point. So if I've been convincing you, yes, I do 
uh, I'm more ludatic than uh, people working in the uh, European Commission. I invented a project to sketch this out, to basically bring it really to citizens. You can look it up in the internet, the European Balcony Project. It will take place on 10th of November at 4 p.m. And the idea is speech act theory, what you want. I do a lot of yoga. Thoughts become words, become action, become reality. So you need to speak out what you want. So I wanted to create a huge European speech act, which is that on 10th of November at 4 p.m., people will stand on balconies just proclaiming the European Republic, as in history in 1918, the Weimarer Republic was proclaimed, the Hungarian, the Austrian. So, you know, it, it happens always, again, that people proclaim republics, and I felt like, let's do an enormous speech act. And the interesting thing is I have, in the meantime, over 150 theaters who are participating. In the meantime, I have schools. I have already 40 local Facebook groups who are going to organize the proclamation. And I guess I'm writing a letter to Juncker uh, the day before. Perhaps he wants to do it, too. So. <laughs> You said we? You. No. Uh, I'm sorry. I will. I will. Uh, when we discussed uh, this uh, uh, discussion, I was asked to to talk about the back to the future of the the, the governance, the political union, and uh, that's what I want to say a, a few notes about. And it's it's. Uh, uh, I will not be tempted to go into a debate. We can do that uh, later on. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I do think it's very important to have this debate about the the, the future of. Uh, of the EU, but also what is the state of the political union, uh, what needs to be done. I think it's a, it's a very important um, uh, topic uh, to discuss. Um, and it is being discussed, and people like, like Macron, they create huge expectations. But can the EU live up to those expectations? Is it wise to create such expectations? In discussions on the future of the EU and the political union, I uh, sometimes feel like a, a, a wedding counselor, although I have no idea what that is. Uh, but I think if a wedding counselor is you have uh, 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 a married couple in front of you, <coughs> and uh, they probably they love each other because otherwise they wouldn't be here. <coughs> but they love each other, but they want to change each other uh, continuously, you know. Uh, his cooking is bad, she lacks humor, uh, whatever, he should do more sports or, you know, it, it's, there's, there's something about love in the air, but there's also a need for fundamental, or a wish for fundamental um, uh, change. <clears throat> and then I think, and this is what I think about the EU, <clears throat> why can't we just be happy with what we have? This is the EU. Uh, why do we really want to change it? And can we change it? And if it's difficult to change it, is it important to talk about change? So what is it that we have? Shouldn't we say at this point in time, this is Europe, this is it, and it actually works pretty well? Uh, so that would be my, my starting point, and that's, if I were a marriage counselor, I would probably say that to a couple of couples, this is what you have, be happy with it, you know, this is life. Um, <clears throat> so now applying this, I want to make two points uh, one point is about sort of the general uh, uh, change process we are in, that we are discussing. Um, and talking about change is a, is a very welcoming political frame. Yeah? The change, yes, we can. So there is a sort of urgency uh, to change. Uh, 
uh, also now driven by, by Spitzenkandidaten, I think. Um, yeah, people, people like uh, uh, to change. And in the EMU, we, um, uh, we, we have discussions uh, about uh, political union, minister of finance, uh, uh, the backstop for the banks, uh, the, the, the use of the uh, ESM or European Monetary Fund, uh, European taxation. We have all these uh, discussions. But on the one hand, and there I think I very much agree with you, <clears throat> the member states are very reluctant. There's a lack of willingness to actually go wholeheartedly in that direction. And then we get Mazenberg, and everybody seems to be disappointed. Some think it goes too far, other things it doesn't go far enough. Um, <clears throat> so that, that, that leads to the, um, so there's lack of willingness. But I, I also did a, 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 an expert panel on uh, the EMU with uh, economists from all over Europe. And actually it turned out that people in the end wanted to safeguard the no bailout clause. We can also hear that in Macron, his speeches. So there's a sort of, in the end, development, that the, the no bailout clause, and so, so you don't need solidarity, I presume, is, is still high uh, on our agendas, if I'm correct there. It's just the in-between period. How do we get out of this situation? But it's not that we want a, a totally different eurozone or maybe political union in the end. That is my, uh, that's my guess. So what we get is a compromise at the moment. And I do think we will get a Eurozone budget, which is in my country, the Netherlands, not very uh, uh, much liked. <clears throat> but there will be a Eurozone budget, I guess. And the Eurozone budget will be uh, part of the uh, multi-annual financial framework. It will be rather small, and it will be dedicated to uh, specific uh, convergence uh, projects. It will not be a sort of Eurozone budget that maybe Macron wants. <clears throat> so what we get is, uh, yes, we will do get a sort of EMF, it will be the ESM, there will be some sort of a bank stop, but it will be to many people, too little, too late, and kicking the can down the road, etc. Um, now I wonder, but if you also look at the packages that I see emerging, these packages are also very much uh, attached to uh, conditionality and monitoring. Now, if I look at the package, I think actually this is, for the EMU, not a bad package. It's a compromise. All countries have, to, you know, have been giving things. We have developed the EMU to an extent we wouldn't have never thought you know, five years or, or seven years ago. And actually, with these steps that we're taking, although small, we may actually be building a stability union for the Eurozone. It may actually work. To many, it's not inspiring enough, but maybe this is not so bad. So as to a, a couple in crisis, I would say, this is it. You know, why aren't we happy with it? It's, it may be pretty good. Uh, and it will probably lead to a resilient Eurozone. Now, <coughs> in the context of my first remark about the longer development. So the longer development is not about a completely different Eurozone. This is actually, we see the contours. It's a bit of everything. It's a lot of monitoring. It's a lot of conditionality. But there's also an enormous commitment to stay together. 
fall, dropping out apart from the UK is, I think, um, uh, not on the agenda. <coughs> I will be much shorter about the, the EU of the, uh, the values, the value union, uh, which is now something that is very much on the agenda also of Spitzenkandidaten. Again, this gives me a sort of romantic idea about another sort of Europe. It's like another sort of Europe, but so is the EU a value union, a union of, of values, our common values? Um, of course, it's terribly important, and I, I think we, we can be proud of the EU that we are so engaged with each other, that we look for the debates and the arguments, and not just the politicians. We do that on our own levels as tourists or whatever. But the EU is not, in that sense, a legal value union, as far as I can see. It's much more. It is also an economic union, but it's also a very pragmatic union that may not change very fast, but it is very resilient. And this is a way to actually move on with European integration. So even with the, with the value community, I'm not convinced that we go f should go flat out for the, the value community, but actually we may be pretty happy with what we are, as ineffective as it is. But this is what it is. There's very little more. And actually, it keeps us committed to uh, each other, and it is about resilience. So my first set of remarks are more about, this is Europe. Let's be happy with it, and let's be proud of it, and it's resilient, etc. But there are things that I think we do have to change. But in the context of not dramatic changes, but some changes that I would like to uh, 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 underline. And my, my first point is, if we talk about changing Europe, then the question is, at what level do we need to change the EU? And I would think, for example, uh, the EU uh, may suffer from exogenous shocks. Eh? They come from outside. Well, but if the countries themselves have buffers, they can deal with uh, external shocks much better. So instead of looking at EU level for answers, we may first have to pose the questions, where do the problems really lie? And how can we address them? Also, when it comes to a social model for Europe, why not first start with what do we expect from the member states in terms of uh, resilient social models? And there's a lot of work to do at that level. I think that, so the, the, the question is every time, what is actually the problem? And we may find that the problems are quite often at the national level. In this respect, I'm a bit critical of uh, what Juncker has been saying, that the EU has to deliver it's creating, again, as I said before, it's creating expectations of the EU that will deliver. But if the problems are often caused at the national level, it is there that we have to look for the solutions. If the problems are created at the national level, then European answers may not work. So instead of wanting to change the EU, I would look I would try to be more analytical in this respect and really try to map out in detail where the problems are. In this sort of context of what I think should change, I won't say, say very briefly, I think we have, to also, we have to look at the Commission because the EU is based on rules, as uh, Ulrich and I uh, agree. But then you also need to have a supervisory mechanism for rules and that is 
something else than a political commission. I think there we have an issue of what is the commission, but also about the trust in the commission. I will not elaborate that and leave it uh, for the discussion. What I would, would, would come at is um, uh, I would not plead for a completely different uh, EU. I would stick to actually we can be pretty proud of what we have. And what we may need to do is look at how can we make better what we have and be proud of it. And I think making it better is already hard enough. Thank you. Well, we have a little bit of time, Ulrike um, and Adrian, to, to discuss here before, before opening up um, also to the, to the audience. So, so perhaps let me, Ulrike, add um, one or two or three. Three. I have three small remarks, um, perhaps for you to uh, to uh, to also react uh, react to. And I think the first the first point is that I I sort of tend to share uh, your view that um, once you share a monetary union, you have a you have a currency. Uh, there is an issue of um, of tax resources that need to be made available to uh, to that currency union, and it seems to me that all the trouble we've been having over the last um, uh, well, I don't know how many years shall we say at least ten years are one way or another related uh, to the issue of uh, taxation power, mm -hmm. um, which is, as we all know, basically a national power while monetary union might require, uh, does require at least some, at some level, some, uh, some euro area taxation power. Now, if you, if you, if you buy into this, um, I think you come very quickly to um, the point that you make, um, well, who, who's, taking, who's taking decisions on taxes, right? And, uh, and you seem to agree with um, the view of, uh, of many, uh, including Wolfgang Schäuble, for example, uh, who's been saying, well, it cannot be the European Parliament because the European Parliament is not a legitimate parliament. It does not represent citizens in the European Union equally. So one, one, vo one vote, um, one citizen, one vote, um, that you mentioned that, that phrase, does not apply to the European Parliament, as we all know. Um, so um, uh, I guess my first, uh, first question, therefore, would be, uh, do you agree with that? And are you actually saying that um, uh, sort of the basic statement um, uh, would have to be a, a fundamental reform of the European Parliament um, where um, uh, uh, the representation of citizens becomes based on one, one, one person, one vote principle? Now, I personally, I, I'm not so, uh, so much in line with this argument, I have to admit, because... Um, uh, it seems to me that we have a decision-making process where we have two chambers. Um, we have a parliament and we have a council. And it is true that the parliament um, has a pretty unequal representation uh, of citizens. But it is also true that the council um, has a very equal representation in the sense that uh, it's population size that counts in the votes. And if you, if you think that we have a sort of a double um, legislative, I mean, on legislation, I don't think we have any democracy problem at this stage because we have the parliament and we have the council that are co-legislators. And while it's true that the representative of the citizens actually is perhaps less representative than the representative of the states, in combination, the two uh, 
it seems to me uh, actually do represent uh, quite well quite well um, uh, the uh, the opinions of European citizens. So, so, so perhaps that's that's my my first point, and perhaps you can because you also mentioned the council is not legitimate, and I I, I think it would be nice for the audience here to hear a little bit more your arguments behind that. Um, so I think that's the sort of the first uh, the first point. Um, now, now my second point is on um, uh, on your idea of having a, a European social security as of 2022. Um, I, I think, first of all, it's important to spell that out, um, and we, we've done this with a European unemployment insurance discussion and so on, and I think the, the basic idea is very simple. The basic idea is not to create uh, an additional public sector level at the euro area level, but the idea is to shift some of what is at the national level to the euro area level. And I think that's the only way you can actually do it because creating something additional in a, in a, in a monetary union where government spending is already 50% or more of GDP, I think it's just not possible. I mean, you're gonna, gonna people will revolt against more taxation. So, so if you were to do this, you would have to shift some competences and some some things to to the uh, to the euro area level. Now, I guess there my my question then to you would be: uh, uh, How 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 realistic do you think is it really that citizens will want to buy into this? Because you are basically saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, we have to argue something against our economic interests. But you know, it may be in uh, for democracy, but against against economic interests, that's the new paradigm. You mentioned something of that. Uh, sort well, I I don't know. I mean, if I if I talk to to citizens um, in various countries, I don't get the impression that there's a lot of appetite uh, to give up uh, to give up, uh, let's say, the Bismarckian social uh, social system uh, and replace it uh, with a with a European one um, uh, or the uh, the French social system and replace it with a European one. I mean, that's a huge step. Doing this would be a huge step. I can uh, perhaps report when, when we presented on the European unemployment insurance um, in 2014 during the Italian presidency in, uh, in the uh, Council of Labor Ministers and the Council of Finance Ministers, we made a presentation to both. When we mentioned in the Council of Labor Ministers that you know, doing something like this seriously at some stage would involve and would mean that you actually have to create a European labor market with uh, European labor market institutions. I mean, people were literally uh, a sort of uh, uh, standing up and shouting, that's not acceptable, right? I mean, almost literally. No, they didn't stand up, but this is a civilized council. Not legitimate person, but civilized. <laughs> and and so, so they were, I mean, totally uh, against this and thought it's totally unthinkable uh, to intervene in our national labor markets and make it make it a European labor market, so that was of course the reaction of the state representatives. But um, but uh, but I think they represent of course a lot of what the constituents, the citizens. I mean, if there's one thing they don't like, having I mean having to give up the specific labor market legislation that protects your own job, right? I mean, that's a major change, right? And so, so I, I'd love to hear your reaction to that. I, I mean, I think as nice and conceptually as the idea is, as unrealistic does it, does it look, perhaps. And, and, so, and, and I guess my, my third point is, um, is on sort of what is the overall motivation for, for doing all of this. 
and you didn't say much about this. And I, I thought, I mean, so, so, so what do you think would ultimately motivate people around Europe uh, to do this? And I mean, sort of the project, European project, traditionally it's a question of war and peace. Helmut Kohl uh, talked about the euro being, being a question of peace. Um, I think he's gotten a lot of pushback on that one for sure. Um, so that's the sort of the, the post-war motivation, right? World War II motivation. And then there's the, I guess, the more modern version of it as well. You know, we are sort of increasingly uh, living in a multipolar world um, with, or a bipolar world with China and the U.S. Um, calling the shots. Um, the, uh, the multilateral system itself is under attack and the multilateral system has protected us and that's, by the way, the reason why the European Union has been such a champion of and continues to be a champion of multilateralism because we are a weak player. We are a weak player and that's why we benefit from a strong multilateral uh, rules-based system, but increasingly the big guys, China and the US, play perhaps less a multilateral game and much more uh, a bipolar game. Um, a, 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 a bipolar game, so basically two powers uh, running the show and Europe is sort of being squeezed in between. And the question is, is that enough of a motivation in your view and also in, in the number, I think you said you had hundreds of town talks with citizens across Europe, uh, do people think and perceive it that way? I mean, would they be ready to actually move on some of the critical issues that, that I just discussed, such as the unemployment insurance, such as labor market institutions, such as the actual power to tax? Would they actually be ready to move because of these external threats? And perhaps you can react to those, those three uh, points. So can we get back the charts, please? Can I get back to the PowerPoint? Okay, while this is uh, fixed, uh, just one sentence on Adrian. Uh, let's be happy with what is. Uh, spontaneously, what comes to my mind is Theodor Adorno, one of the biggest philosophers Germany has had. Uh, weil das, was ist, sich ändern kann, ist das, was ist, nicht alles. Because what is, is not everything. What is, can change. Yeah? And whether it changes or not is essentially... <coughs> I know uh, this um, to answer your question. Um, what I mean is to come to your assessment, let's be happy. It's like this, uh, you remember this song with Reagan, just be happy. There was this song when the Reagan year started. Yeah, Be happy, you remember. Whether you can be happy depends essentially on where you sit. If it's in the Netherlands in a smart sort of position, then fine. If it, it's in today's Romania and your kids have gone to work in Brussels or elsewhere and you are a grandma in Romania, you are not happy with the EU. If you are a young Italian, young Spaniard and you have been losing out of the job unemployment, you are not happy with the EU. Um, there are many people who are actually are not happy with the EU and the resentment of these people is what we are experiencing and it's called populism. And to overlook that there is a real resentment, uh, then it's no longer so easy to go against Adorno. I think we do have to change. And if you say just be happy with things like they are, my answer would be what you overlook is generational dynamics. There's a new generation coming, and this new generation 
doesn't know a word about the law and Maastricht treaty and what we, you know, they, they, they just, they are beyond it. There is a huge generational dynamic and loss of institutional memory, and you should not overlook this. And the second is we have systemic factors, and the systemic factors is that we do have populist forces who have a goal. And the goal is to conquer the system. They did so in Hungary, which has already abolished uh, media freedom, uh, constitutional freedom. They do so in Poland. They do increasingly so in Austria, and so on and so forth. So to think that you can survive and everything is fine in just because things are stable, in my opinion, is a wrong assessment. So that's, but now, the question. Taxation, first question, was taxation? I totally agree. With the whole discourse of republic, sovereignty, citizenship and what it means, obviously behind there is the issue of taxation, which is magna carta, the nobis right of a parliament. So what we are talking here is not only taxation, but we are talking about who decides where the taxes are spent for. And this is why I agree we will have a Eurozone budget, hopefully, but I would also say we should not have a Eurozone budget before we have a Eurozone parliament which can decently and in an accountable way decide about this Eurozone budget. We can even not have. So this is why, you know, if when Macron is now heading for a finance minister, Eurozone governance and so on and so forth, yes, but in terms of legitimacy, if there's no parliament, one taxation, one person, one vote, there's no legitimacy to have a Eurozone, a Eurozone budget. So as a political scientist, the things will turn ugly if you have what Habermas is calling executive federalismus, executive federalism, which is basically the Italian case, yeah? There's a commission sitting, we have that law, the Italians should not do, yeah, but you know, I mean, in terms of democracy theory, Salvini is right, I'm sorry, yeah? And unless we fix this, and if we say Eurozone budget, and then we say taxation laws, capacity to tax for the European Union, then we are precisely raising the issue in the Max Weber definition of who is the legitimate sovereign of the system? Who has legitimate power to sanction? And this is the question the EU does not want to answer, and that's the problem of the EU. I can also quote Hamilton, without constitution anything is nothing. That's pretty much what the EU is keeping. So taxation is very important. I give you one single example. Now the EU is doing all this outrage to convince the citizens, especially the young citizens, to vote because we need voter turnout at the next EP elections. All these smart youngsters, Erasmus youngsters, which the EU loves so much, yeah? Everybody has a little NGO and wants to do Europe, yeah? And what do they not have? The little tiny thing of the European association law. Tell me, you cannot found a European association. If you want to go gemeinnützig, charity, you do EV, Eingetragener Verein in Germany, then you go Loi 1901 in France, then you go charity. You have 27 charity legislations in Europe, but you don't have a European association law. But we do have SA, Société Européenne, right? That's because business fought it through. But the citizens so far didn't fight through to have a European association law. Why is this tiny little thing so important? Because if you say uh, European association law, there is an issue, gemeinnützig, uh, charity, of uh, reductibility of taxes. So the question is, who gives you back from Europe your deductibility of taxes if you have a European association? And that's why we don't have a European association law. 
because who is the European political body which, if we were to have a European association, so as to allow citizens to have a transnational organizational format, who would be the taxation sort of person in the EU who does the deductibility of taxes? So in this little example, you have a direct connection between the issue of citizenship, legal status of citizenship, which is if I'm a European citizen and I am a European citizen because Maastricht Treaty grants me from Article 1 to 12 European Remember, Maastricht Treaty was union of citizens and union of states. Unfortunately, union of citizens is meaningless. Union of citizens today means um, we are all European citizens, we love each other and we, say, we share the same values. Yeah? The problem is that the notion of citizenship in today's European Union has no legal underpinning in the, in the sense of citoyenneté, which is granting same rights and obligations. Because if we were to have that, we could have a European uh, association law, and obviously we would tackle the taxation question. So you can come from many angles, from the Eurozone budget, from an association law, whatever, to turn around in circles unless we fix the taxation issue and with it a European citizenship which has a normal meaning, normative meaning, meaning, uh, 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 you know, I think the European Union will not go far. Um, now, uh, I know as a German it's easy to say let's do one person, one vote and then the Maltese and Lithuanians come, oh, German overweight, yeah? My answer is the German overweight is today's system because then one minister, in the case of the European Unemployment Scheme, it was Sigmar Gabriel from the SPD, voted against the European Unemployment Scheme when Laszlo Andor put it into the council. But that's one German vote in one council. Had we had that in the European Parliament, one person, one vote, I bet that half of the Germans had been in favor of a European Unemployment Scheme. So the deconstruction of the one person vote decision into a non-homogeneous masses of German voters, in this case 80 million, they don't want the same. So my argument is that 80 million voters is an overweight, but what I'm heading for is a system in which politics stops nation. So the question is, are you in favor or not for European unemployment scheme, uh, independently of the fact whether you are a Pole or a Dutch or a Slovakian? Yeah? And I think this is the mechanics, basically, which we saw with, if you want so, with Bismarck. Yeah, Because I can tell you, I looked up a very interesting PhD doctorarbeit uh, about the Allgemeine Deutsche Krankenversicherung done in 1892. And I can tell you the debate in the German Reichstag to imagine for a second that all Germans could be treated equally on the social scaling, it was, dis it was dis disputed as hell. The Hessische and the Saxonians and the Rhinelanders could not imagine to be in one single treatment of one German Krankenversicherung. And that's basically a little bit like if you extrapolate it to Europe these days, then, then you end up there. I think what is, we cannot imagine uh, today what might be possible. So now, are the people in favor of the elites? Go to this study from Chatham House. The Chatham House study has interesting data. Why? We feel like the people are against this sort of more Europe argument, and that's why our politicians behave like, oh, I would like to have Europe, but I can't do it. Yeah? The study points to the fact that it's not the people who is divided, and in essence, it's not the people who would be against more Europe whatsoever, European unemployment scheme. European unemployment scheme, there are interesting data out. 
78% are in favor of European of people of in Europe are in favor would be in favor of European unemployment scheme even 58% of Germans even if the European unemployment scheme would be little less than the German unemployment money that's interesting data right it's just not reflected by the current way we vote in the European system so my thesis here is the current division of Europe and the very fact that we cannot move further is not a problem of the people, the people, I prefer citizens. It's a problem of divided elites. Because the elites who shape the system, we can like this or not, but most of the time elites shape a system and don't care a lot about citizens' opinion. Yeah? That's normally uh, the case. But the study tells you that out of the elites, they are divided into three pieces. One wants whatever more Europe, more integration, blah. A second, so that's me. The other is Adrian, let's keep it as things are, let's keep it stable. And the third is deconstruction of Europe. And because today's elite are divided into the three segments, the people don't understand a thing. And the moment in, in, in when you have, in the Foucaultian sense, you lose your discourse order, yeah, because you shift the system when, as we saw in previous periods of integration, where we did the market and the currency, basically the discourse coalition was together. The discourse coalition meaning industry wanted it, the churches wanted it, the parliamentarians wanted it, everybody all together, that's called a discourse coalition, and they wanted all the market and all the currency, and that's why it worked. The problem today is that we don't have a discourse coalition who wants a specific thing for Europe because we have no goal. We say all we want more Europe, we don't attach a goal. That's why I come in and say the goal, what we need is legal convergence also for the citizens. Yeah, That would be one goal under which I hope I can make a sort of um, bundling effect. But the important thing is to understand it's not the citizens who are divided so much. I think they can be conquered for a different thing. If the elites were not divided and if the elites finally had a clear idea what to do and the clear idea by then was the market, then it was the currency, then it was Schengen or whatever, then it was enlargement, and today it should be convergence of legal rights or law convergence for citizens. But it must be simple, it must be pronounceable, and it must have a, a, a feedback thing. So I think I stop here. On the yeah. external? On the external, yeah. Um, I think that would be the answer for the external, because if the Chinese problem is that um, they buy everything without asking, sort of, to make it under-complex, uh, <laughs> you could still argue that for the three things which may threaten Europe, be that Trump trade or be that Africa refugees, be that China, having political power helps. All my argument is about creating political power and to build a political roof for a market and a currency. The moment you had a political roof, the moment you could do, for instance, a European migration law, you would not let come everybody in through asylum because most of the people are not asylum, but we should open uh, legal ways to come to Europe, like green, European green cards, lotteries, or whatever we could think of. Yeah, I mean, but we could think of a smart migration law European-wide. Um, the same accounts for China. I think there should be some regulation on buying strategic goods or not, Yeah, like uh, Hafen von Piraeus or energy uh, nets in, in, in Germany. Um, and there should be something like an industry politics, which is Europe is not for sale. 
Europe is not for sale. And the moment you can um, uh, engineer this in a political mechanism, um, then I think we would be better off. But now, I think there was one question I didn't answer, which is sort of your second chamber representation sort of yeah, thing. On yeah, on the, yeah on the council. I give you this, uh, one of these, you know, sort of visionary things. But if I argue on one person, one vote, which would be a sort of House of Representatives or a different European Parliament than today, because you would have equal voting and not the EP sort of weighted voting structure then we would need to think of a second chamber because we would need to have division of powers and a bicameralism. So two options here. One option is you leave the council as it is and then you had 27 whatever votes in that second chamber, the council would be the second chamber. Yeah? One other option is to deconstruct today's EU even further and to say, look, because, you know, I'm, there, there is not only the nation state. My point here is there are many, many actors in Europe, as there are regions, ADR, Ausschuss der Regionen, Committee of Regions, Eurocities, the cities. What I tried to capture in my Why Europe Must Become a Republic, I was building the whole thing um, after the Maya principle. Maya, M-A-Y-A, most advanced yet applicable. Things work when they have a certain plausibility. It's like Da Vinci Code, yeah? It's not totally weird to assume that Maria Magdalena and Jesus had a sexual relationship. That's why the, work, the book worked so well, yeah? So the thing is you want to cater to current trends. And I see two trends in current European things. The one is we want a whole Europe united against the Chinese, Americans, Russians, whatever, political roof. The Republic, same law for everybody, legal equality. That's the Republican roof. But who are the constituencies of this Republic? One is the Council, I already said it. But if you deconstruct further, you could imagine we go back to old European maps around medieval world west, Scotland, Bavaria, Tyrol, Baskenland, Savoyen, uh, Elsass, Catalonian, they are all out there to build a European Senate based on, say, two senators per read, even Paul Magnette and Wallonie and CETA. And you remember this Wallonie thing. For we, we, just Brussels was totally uh, surprised that there is little asterisk Wallonie sort of thing. We want to have a say. We are not into the federal Belgium. And, and, and nobody had, a, had an answer as much as we don't have an answer to the Catalan claim, which is a fair claim. I'm not going into Catalan ethno regionalism. That's not my point. But imagine that Spain is just four kingdoms. Yeah, It's not only Catalonia, Andalusia, Castilla, Baskenland. So it's four entities which were brought together by um, the Habsburger into one kingdom. And then from there, the Bourbons, whatever, you know. And, and all, I mean, these are the, you could imagine that we deconstruct into smaller entities and that we find constitutional carriers which could deliver a second chamber which corresponds to what people today want, which is closer to the citizen, regionalism, my identity, and I have a say. And I am convinced that the EU, if it does not deliver on these things, transparency, regionalism, identity, participation, it will not survive. That's what divides us. I'm more in an emergency modus because I'm doing the town hall things, and the town halls go nuts on Europe. Okay, I, I think I think it's time to uh, to open up for questions, remarks. I see one here, the lady there. 
the gentleman there. Um, so let's get those three first. Please, uh, can, can we get the mic here in the front? Thanks a lot. Uh, my name is Leo from uh, Transparency International, and thanks a lot for a, a very nice discussion and for also bringing some views in that are maybe a bit uh, outside the, the mainstream or what is uh, generally uh, seen as, as uh, pragmatic in, in Brussels quarters. So I think that's much appreciated. Uh, and I would share um, this warning that there's a danger of sounding too complacent if uh, one overemphasizes that things are fine as they are. Uh, I also have this general assumption that we're going to be quite surprised in 10 years that the European Union is still around and everything is still sort of prodding on uh, as always. But, um, but if, you, if you're fine with that, then I wouldn't go around saying, hey, everything is, is great and the EU, we should be happy with what we have. But uh, maybe uh, another strategy to achieve that would be to uh, expressly lower ambition for the European project and say, no, it's fine to just have you know this, this trade kind of thing and, and not uh, have overall these ambitions on, on yeah. actually making uh, justice for citizens and, and social Europe and so on. But um, I would share also that you have to focus on the member states uh, and that the, the core of the problem is not at the European level. But of course, focusing on the member state carries a huge risk of just being apathetic and just uh, kind of laying back and saying, well, I mean, this is an issue of the member states, they should solve it. Uh, because it would be a miracle if all 27 member states solved all of their internal issues at the same time. Uh, clearly, something needs to be done here. And so the one way how you can do both at the same time, so address things at the European systemic level, while not just hoping for member states to sort of do the right thing, uh, would be to indeed address the council, right? Uh, and I f found it interesting that there was a bit of an academic discussion here going on about is the European Parliament really representative or uh, do we have to change maybe the way that the council takes its decisions when I think we have a much more fundamental problem here, which is that uh, European citizens cannot vote out the council as such, right? So there's no direct accountability for the council. The only thing European citizens can do is vote against their national government. So they can only ever address one small piece of the council. Now, in legislative debates where you need more transparency than for executive debates, the council does not even publish the individual positions of member states. Now, how on earth is a citizen going to hold their government accountable if the council does not systematically uh, record or publish the mm. positions of member states? Obviously, in 2013, there was a court case where uh, the European Court of Justice told the council in no uncertain terms that clearly they have to uh, publish the positions of member states in every legislative procedure individually, government by government, and not just the aggregated position of the 28 member states as the common approach. Uh, and the reaction of the council in May 2014, when Correpea, was to decide that they were no longer going to systematically record mm -hmm. member state positions on legislative files uh, so that citizens couldn't petition for the release via access to document uh, regulations. And so now, on an ad hoc basis, depending on how contentious the file is, the council just doesn't record those positions. So I'm not asking for live streaming. I'm not asking for recording illegally. I'm not asking for live streaming of council sessions. I'm not even asking for the minutes of preparatory bodies. But I think citizens have a fundamental right to know the positions that governments are taking in, in their name. And this is one of those few silver bullets, which sounds a little bit technical, 
but if you actually admit what position you're taking under the name of your citizen, that would enable journalists, academics, NGOs to much more closely track the debate uh, at the European level. And it will also, to some extent, force national po uh, politicians to take ownership of the decisions <coughs> at the European level and uh, limit a bit this blame game that erodes the credibility and the added value of the EU over time. Thanks. Please, the lady there. Uh, thank you. My name is Sonia from the Young European Federalists. Uh, I saw our little logo in one of your uh, slides where you were talking about the silent majority. Uh, so my question actually is, uh, to which extent uh, did you consult federalist policies while were you coming up uh, with your idea of the European Federation, uh, European Republic, I'm sorry. Uh, because to me it seems that you did come up with a new framing and with a new name but many principles behind it have already been outlined by the Federalists beforehand. Thank you. The gentleman in the back. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, good evening, citizens. My name is Angelos Karlaftis, a Papos Advisors. We represent the Echo Waves Movement, a pan-European and Mediterranean movement, which is based in direct democracy, in science, and in ecology. We have a vision for Europe. And uh, we will not stand on the differences of uh, republic and democracy, which are totally different things. Uh, and we will not stand on the, on the difference of representative democracy and democracy, as Aristotle described it, which needs the Tirazo or, or lottery in the 94% of uh, all the administrative issues, because this is the true democracy. Uh, uh, also, we will not stand on the differences between federation, which is based on the Roman uh, system, and uh, homosponde, which is based on the Delphi system, and the West hasn't yet understand it well. Uh, but uh, uh, due to the economic collapse, which is for sure is coming, we will tell you the three uh, things we as movement, uh, we envision for the for a United Europe and Mediterranean as a, as a zone in our uh, Gaia environment, uh, which will uh, play a very important role for the humanity. First, the Brexit is a very big opportunity and occasion for the European citizens to understand better themselves. Uh, we, we propose a delay of five years according to the treaties so that we all, the Europeans, to reconsider better the environment we have to build. Uh, and the British, together with the, uh, with the Concilium, the Conseil d'Europe, which is based in Strasbourg, the Organization of Security in Vienna to organize, according to the, to the Treaty of 1954, the European Defense Community, which will be another pole for Europe, which will be totally different from this one, which is based on the United States of Europe of the 18th century with the visionaries uh, in the beginning of the, of the 19th century visionaries, uh, which they were thinking about that, which we, the Europeans, we are totally different. This economic union, on the other uh, part, uh, must be stand not to only one currency, as the, which is based on the mark uh, uh, basement, but also to the sterling and pound, another currency, uh, which will be based uh, <coughs> on the bridge, which the, uh, Europe cannot exist without the bridge. It's not, it's not uh, Europe. Can you, can you come to your question, outside. please? Yes. So we propose two plus one currencies for the economic union. For uh, these two poles, they will construct the, the, the Europe of the future, the Europe of a common culture, which will unite the West, which governs for the last 1,000 years, and the East. Thank okay. you very much. Thank, thank you. Uh, Herr Geisert. 
collected into this. <laughs> Kurt Geisert, Backbone Consulting in Germany. I have a question for Ulrike Gero. Now that you mentioned Tyrol and Baskenland, <laughs> we have a discussion in South Tyrolia right now. Is it a good idea uh, to give them the um, citizenship of Austria as well? Mm -hmm. uh, Chancellor Kurz uh, has some sympathy for it. Uh, it has to be discussed with Rome, and there are first indications about the reaction of Rome already. Mm -hmm. Being Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. Perhaps this will not be the last case. Hmm? Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Baskenland. Mm -hmm. If now the Spanish, uh, the people in the Spanish Baskenland mm -hmm. ask for a French nationality as well, we can be very curious how the reaction of President Macron will be. Mm -hmm. um, in this context, uh, such discussions, can they influence the uh, discussion about European citizenship in your eyes? Thank you. Please. We, we collect, um, I would mm -hmm. say, Yes, my name is George Zabos, my former George. MEP. Um, here in the discussion today, uh, probably I might be ready to ask everybody that most of you are not coming, you're not Belgians, but you're going to go back to your places. If you hear what you've heard, what message you could give to the citizens back in your places if you have to do? Did you get something of specific message in this discussion? Why I'm saying that? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, and here's the question, that we have a cognitive problem about Europe. Yeah. What do we mean, for example, by European political union? Do we agree that when talking about political union, we're talking basically about values, meaning political science, the value of liberty, freedom, and the value of justice. And if this is all about it, then we have to have an entirely new narrative regarding the economic narrative that we had bring us up to now through European integration, but which we know, we understand, we have reached our limits. It get, doesn't go anymore. And if we have this cognitive uh, problem, here also we should explain to European citizens how we come from an asymmetric democracy, what was Europe, during the Eurozone crisis, up to a republic of democracy, of regional expectations, in other terms, what should we expect from the nation state and what should we expect from uh, the European no. Union? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, populism thrives on this confusion, and that's something to be done. Mm -hmm. And two mm -hmm. second issues is one, who can do it and where? Do you think you can do it through the bubble, uh, Brussels bubble you're not explaining, or you need to do it as probably some of you are doing it you know, from place to place? And the second issue is how, uh, uh, how, what is the time for that? Because creating new opinion, even about the most validly democratic things, needs time. In seven months' time, we had in Tokyo's European elections, the acid test of the European democracy. Do you think that we're ready to explain to European citizens what is Europe is all about convincingly and be able to revert the trend, you know, populism that thrives right now. And talking, and here's my last point and question probably, talking about uh, European democracy, obviously freedom is something very important, but I don't know anywhere else where individual freedom is best represented and defended than in Europe through the legal European system in the European Court of Justice. But the question is, can we explain to the citizen that there is also a civic duty about Europe. 
is the way of doing that when, for example, you know that the citizens are attached to the nation state because most of the things we discuss up to now regard the welfare state. And welfare state is a matter still of the nation state, you know, to be done. These things that needs to be explained, to be later able to explain also that in a politia, according to Aristotle, of republic whatever, the number one issue is security of the citizen. And then comes the well-being. And if we don't raise the issue about mm. European defense, security, and obvious matters pertaining uh, to the migration and other things, there's no way of explaining, you know, through the economic narrative anymore what is all about the European political project. Questions? Thank you. Maria, did you yeah. want to? Yeah, is it time? Well, we have a, we, I'm collecting a few more, and then we have a final round. I think yeah. otherwise it's not going to be possible. So, Maria? So, Enrique, I just wanted to, to ask, you mentioned a lot about the Republic and, um, um, and, and the issue of the citizens, less so about identity. And my question is, what, what comes first? Can, can you have a republic yeah. without identity? Mm -hmm. or, or, mm -hmm. or can you have, uh, mm -hmm. you need identity before you can okay. have a republic, okay. effectively? Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and if I, Adrian, if I may come back to your realism, which I think is always very, very useful to be realistic, but I think that, and here will echo my, my colleagues, uh, some of my colleagues, was it Leo? Yeah. Um, the issue of uh, the inconsistency between what we need to do at the country level and what we aspire to do at the European level, um, you know, we, of course, I can never argue with you against the idea that we need to go back to the nation and fix what the nations are doing, but our ambitions is to be interconnected, to do things with each other, and, and I don't mean just banks here, I mean, you know, the citizen wants to travel, uh, we want to claim social security in other countries. How can you sort these things out if you concentrate on doing it at the country level? Some of the ambitions, uh, in order to remain consistent, require organization at the European level, and the question is, how can we align the ambitions to what is realistic in terms of organization? Right. Um, I think I have one more. Do I have a, oh, and, and Peter, but first, first the gentleman here, and I also have one on this last point I also want to raise. Okay, so please. Thank you. I'm Nico Keppens, working for the European Commission, but I'm also a little bit a local journalist. I, I mention this because this means that I'm still with my two feet in society. And um, um, uh, there were uh, local elections in, uh, recently in, in, in Flanders, in Belgium, and I tried to get up uh, or start a discussion about what is it about pol politics and, and how to get involved in local uh, issues. The main uh, or the most replies that I got was, please stop talking about politics. And that is, I think, the main issue. And if that is already at local level, how can we imagine we who are all living in this European bubble, those who are interested, are in, who are here, they are indeed interested, but a lot of people are fed up with politics. Mm -hmm. And that is the main issue, how to create, recreate trust in politics. Only then we can start talking about institutions, mm -hmm. about representation. People are not interested anymore. Mm -hmm. so. uh, Peter? Thank you, uh, Peter Klepper from Think Tank Open Europe. I have a question for uh, Ulrike. Um, I had the impression a little bit that the, the choice you presented was between the populist, Le Pen, Salvini, and on the other hand, sort of uh, another leap forward. Maybe that was not your um, intention, but sort of immerse a bit like that. But I think in the, in the past, every time 
the EU lost legitimacy, it was uh, under fire. I think it was always when some steps forward were made that I think were not necessary. For example, scrapping veto powers to open up trade. I mean, we could have continued with just mutual recognition, the Commission going after protectionist elements. Um, the same with the Euro. Okay, um, you can make a point, some uh, exchange risk disappeared, but then I think uh, a lot more debt has been enabled by it. Um, migration, I mean, 2015, 16, there was this decision to outvote Central and Eastern European member states. The idea was to spread out people within the Schengen zone where there's no passports. This has practically failed. It wasn't necessary, but another step forward that was deemed necessary, but actually, I think, uh, backfired. Uh, so, um, I mean, shouldn't this be a lesson for the future that uh, concentrating power, ever more power in Brussels is not actually necessary to keep all the good aspects uh, that the EU has brought to us, uh, economic uh, um, uh, freedom, which has uh, supported economic growth, which has therefore indirectly contributed uh, to peace. So, so let me perhaps add one last on sort of to, uh, going a bit to the defense of, of, of Adrian on the things are fine uh, as, as they are, where you said, well, th things are not fine in the south of Europe, to which, of course, we all agree. Um, also in the east of Europe. Not yeah, yeah, but, uh, but I, think the question, I think the question you have to answer, and I think several asked this question, <laughs> the question you have to answer is to what extent your vision would actually improve the situation, right? I mean, would, would any, any of your measures actually help overcome the misery in Greece? Question mark, right? Um, so it is, and I think several asked the question, what are the competences that are at the EU level and what are the competences at the national level, right? And if you buy into the story that Adrian also said that a lot of, I mean, let's say the problems in southern Italy nothing to do with the EU, they have to do with the fact that there is a bad administrative and uh, system, right? And that there's corruption and many other things. So if, if you buy into that story, okay, I mean, citizens will be just as unhappy in your European Republic living in Southern Europe uh, uh, than, than they are in, in, in the current EU. So, so, so how, how do you fix the real issues? I mean, Thing. Okay, so please, just, just, yeah, and, and Arjen, you will also get to react. Yeah, for sure. but, but, I mean, but so. because this is, I didn't say everything is all right. Right, no, no. But sure. as far as I said that, I, I definitely said that that includes that the EU has very pragmatic ways to solving its problems. Exactly. So it's not that, that this is about, about the state quo. That's just I, sure, uh, what sure. I wanted to say. Sure. That. So, yeah. So, so, but you also no, no, but uh, some th of just the points, before yeah? this, yeah. And so, so um, please, Ulrike, and, and we could talk for two hours now yeah. on all this. I, I so will be very, very quick. Yes. So, make the vote transparent, absolutely agreed, and we do not want to wait for the next Varoufakis memories to tell us what has been in the council. Yeah? Can, can I react on this point also? Is, excuse me to interrupt. Yeah. But, I mean, shouldn't this be a responsibility of the national parliaments to hold their national governments to account? I mean, I know in the German context, I do know that whenever the German minister comes with a significant decision uh, to the council, he has to defend that to, to the German public who elected him. Maybe very or her. Quickly, two quick so, so perhaps you can just. Yeah, can you have a mic? 
because I think that's an important point. I mean, it is. who is, it who is. is accountable? I who mean, is to accountable? Who, to whom who are votes? you accountable? Yeah, who and votes? it seems to who me a council member is accountable. A council member is a council minister is accountable to his own parliament. So, so two very quick points on yes. that. Uh, one, of course, um, absolutely in theory, it would be possible to hold uh, ministers to account on a national level. But firstly, uh, in practice, only four or five parliaments actually do that. Okay, and even though four or five the only ask about decisions that have direct regard to their own national context. So it's not like the Finnish parliament also holds the Finnish finance minister to account about that decision on the Portuguese budget, on the Belgian budget, on the Austrian budget, and so on. They only ask about the decision on right. the Finnish budget. No, so uh, while theoretically it would be possible, in practice it rests on absolutely heroic assumptions to believe that you can decentrally hold to account ministers. Okay, okay. Okay, the second so, question yeah. was uh, whether I consulted. No, you know, at the beginning I didn't because I wanted, as I said, uh, just write an anger book, yeah, sort of expressing my anger about a non-functioning system, and I wanted to think about an emotional resonance board. And I discovered, and we can discuss that in length, but federal is not an emotional word, and I have data now who can show this. Because in 1790, when the French uh, fe uh, did la fête de fédération, Basically, federal smells centralist in France, whereas federal is Bund, Länder und Gemein in Germany and so on and so forth. No, so federal has a very that. different yeah. meaning in resonance borders. Republic has not. Republic is, Republic is, so. And when I did the book, and then obviously I have so many friends from Yef and so on and so forth, I discussed it in length. Yeah? So I'm, believe me, I'm, I just saw Pier Angelo Dastoli in Italy, and, and he will do the balconies in Roma, so uh, I, I think I'm fine. Um, now, the offer for you, what will be better, uh, East-West, my offer is European citizens based on equal law is the best offer I can do to avoid that uh, there is a German industrial protectorate basically fooling around with the interests of Hungarians and Polish people. Yeah? Um, now, uh, the uh, Tirol Baskenland citizenship question, that's my little sort of, I, I like it, yeah? Because at the end of the day, I just hope that we come on on the right side, which is there's just one citizenship which is at stake. It's a European citizenship, yeah? And whether you have an Austrian, an Italian, and then the Brexit, and those who want to, you know, the, all this Euro Brexit citizenship claim is that the Brits who are, uh, want to stay under Maastricht Treaty citizen of the European, so European citizen is the battle of Europe in the future. And if you go to the notion of citoyen in the sense I explained, it can mean only one thing. We are equal in front of the law, period, period, period. And only then we can talk. So I hope that all these little things will ultimately push us down, down, down the cane. Um, cognitive problem, political union. Yeah, we never explained what political union is. That's, That's right. why I come with the law. That, that, that was the whole idea to reframe. I mean, you know, reframing is really important. I give you one example. The lesbian and gay community in, in California yeah, wanted to do a vote on uh, right to marriage. And it failed even in liberal California. And then they went to see George Lakoff, who is this linguist. Yeah? And he said, what, right to marry in the US? Can't work. <clears throat> Country of freedom, freedom to marry. And so the reframing from right to marry to freedom to marry brought the lesbian campaign to right to marry. Yeah? But the reframing was freedem to marry. So, tout est longue. François Zolto, am Anfang war das Wort. Framing is utmost important. 
And so political union is not telling. It's a, but republic is you, your rights, equal law as you as European citizens. So my, my whole exercise is about reframing um, of action. Yeah? And so uh, I think if we were to come through the door with the law, which is equal rights for European citizens, that's one single claim. Um, and all, by the way, all emancipatory movements work in the way. 1789, equality beyond classes. Suffragettes, 1980, uh, equality beyond gender. Martin Luther King, quality beyond uh, color. And now, uh, equality beyond national affiliation. Yeah? But you need to, that's why Varoufakis failed. More democracy is same like political union. You cannot make a personal claim for you. The moment you say republic and you say equal rights for all European citizens, everybody has something to win, which is equal rights. It accounts for the southerners who are no longer the pigs. It accounts for the easterners who are no longer the declassified second uh, class uh, European citizens. Okay, well, whatever, yeah, but still it is an offer of reconciliation under same law after the crisis we experienced and which drove us auseinander. Uh, uh, in part, terms of a uh, part, in terms of debitor, creditor, east, west, and so on and so forth. So now, uh, welfare state, nation state, I like it because um, there is a super cool book which has just been re-edited from Marcel Mauss, French sociologue, Die Nation oder der Sinn für Soziale, La Nation ou le sens pour le social. The book offers a definition what a nation is. And the definition is those who realize that they are so tightly uh, interwhelmed, uh, intertwined in socioeconomic terms that they need to institutionalize solidarity, those from a nation. And I would make out of this discussion, the book is from 1920, the state of the art of Europe today. Because everything we're hanging out with, Eurozone budget, who pays for the Italians, whatever, all these questions are basically questions who is in a system of institutionalized solidarity? Because the last decade of crisis was that we were not in a system of institutionalized solidarity because it was mainly the German Bundestag who decided, do we bail out the Greeks? Perhaps yes, no, blah, blah, blah. Yeah? But if we were in an institutionalized solidarity, meaning we had a European unemployment scheme, you don't discuss solidarity. Everybody gets equal citizens, the same European unemployment scheme or the same minimum wage, whatever we could find. So the notion of Marcel Mauss to define nation as institutionalized solidarity could point us to the fact that what we are discussing in essence these days is basically the Nationenwerdung Europas. I prefer the term republic because nation has all these deformations, you know, these ethnic things. But uh, I think there's something to look for in this definition. And if you go Marine Le Pen and everything she said on the marketplaces in her campaigning, si il n'aura plus la nation qui s'occupera des pauvres. This was the sentence, Marine, you go YouTube, you look Marine Le Pen, si il n'y a plus la nation qui s'occupera des pauvres, donc il faut na la nation, on peut pas... So, Europe goes nation in the sense of we provide institutionalized solidarity or Europe will fail. L'Europe sera sociale ou ne sera pas, which is to say if you go European social security number, if you offer a direct relation of institutionalized solidarity to European citizens, I think we do have a chance, but it's basically cross-cutting uh, the term of welfare state and nation and to bring it to the European level, which I think is at stake. Uh, identity. Identity, yes, but the mantra of Europe was always uh, unity in diversity, right? The only pledge I'm doing here is we need normative, the unity can only be normative. And the culture is diverse, yeah? 
So it's normative unity and cultural diversity, but the cultural diversity is not you are Finnish and uh, uh, German and French. The diversity is Bretagne, Corsica, Rhineland, whatever. Yeah. So um, if you, so my Republican thing here is not stealing identity. It's just giving back identity under the mantra, which is the European mantra, norm, uh, unity in, 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 in diversity. It's just differentiating that the mm. unity is only normative and the cultural diversity is not necessarily the national. Uh, uh, that is very important because if you go with me on this, then all this talk about creating a super state, blah, 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 centralizing identity, losing me into Europe super state, is all basically uh, bullshit. Yeah? Because, yeah, because, for instance, the German Federal Republic is not a centralized state. It just offers equal law for all your German citizens, and it has multi various identities. So France, the Corsica and Bretons don't even speak the same language. What makes them to French citizen is the normative unity that at the end of the day they all get smic. Yeah, it's not that the Corps and the Breton can talk to each other. So, if if we so, law equality does not mean super state and does not mean melting yeah. identities. That is the point. If you want normative no, uh, unity in, in in diversity, you go unity normative and uh, identity cultural. Lastly, politics, I agree. It's the biggest point. I, can't, I, I think this is another discussion because you would need to talk yes. about robotics, algorithm, <laughs> everything that makes people fear. You know, I mean, the, we, we are always talking institutions because that's what we are here for, yeah? But all the meta trends which we are experiencing obviously feel that um, uh, society is it and no longer politics. There are many reasons for this, but it's, it's, a, it's a different discussion. But here you go uh, on the polarization of my discourse. Yes, you are right. Uh, either it's the populist or we do a quantum leap. Yeah, I guess I'm doing this, polar, uh, this uh, polarization, but I think it's wrong to assume because your argument is this does not hold true because in former times uh, we always could muddle around through a crisis and, uh, uh, and stay alive in a certain way. Yeah, But the thing is that what was true in the past does not need to be true in the future. Yeah. So that's the counter-argument. Mm. And uh, nur weil alles immer gut gegangen ist, heißt es noch lange nicht, dass es in Zukunft auch immer yeah. gut geht. You know? So what, what, what I, last sentence, but I think there is a real thing. I'm not sitting here and I build the republic. That, you know, that's, uh, that's not how it goes. That you but, do in the town hall. But what, <laughs> I'm, what I want to appeal to is that it's John Lennon. Life is what you are thinking about while it's happening. History is what is happening while you are thinking how to manage it. Yeah? Right. And history works with game-changing elements. And game-changing elements are elements in which history just opens a door, like 9-11 German unification. And only because we had German unification, the euro could sneak into history. Yeah? It was in the shelves 20 years before. So the only thing I'm reasoning is not I construct the republic, but I'm I'm reasoning that fragile systems don't survive, and fragile system basically open the door when some of a trigger comes, and then the day after you are in a different mood, or in a, like Soviet Union comes down. Yeah, and but the only thing I want reached, is to have whether we have reached this moment where the door is opening uh, and Bismarck. Yeah, or the we new we don't we, we never know. Yeah, we we, no, we, we we never know. But three weeks before the USSR came down, I heard the whole Brussels yeah. and everywhere saying Nobody it never can it. be too big yes. to fail. Yeah? yeah, so we never know. Yeah. And I just want that we just have one single sentence 
uh, at that moment in time, which is now we build Europe on equality of citizens. Yeah. That's okay. let, let, let's give Adrian also a chance to say Sorry. two, three points, and then we close, really. So, so Adrian, please. Well, I, I think there's a big problem about the uh, cognitive uh, uh, idea behind what we're talking, because the fundamental question is, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? That's, uh, uh, and I think we really have to start with a diagnosis, uh, and there I think we are not very much in ag agreement. I, I don't think the EU is very fragile. I think the, some member states are very fragile. That's the level where we have to um, solve it. Um, uh, some of the things sound to me also like uh, we give the citizens a, a euro, then they feel uh, a, a Europe in their pockets. It, it didn't work. Um, as regards um, the, the general idea about you know, a big vision on something else, I must say I am rather reluctant to go down that, down that road. And I mean it. Uh, um, one thing is when I look, I'm, I'm doing a book on narratives in 12 member states. And one thing I find is that the narratives in, in, in some of the countries, probably most of the countries, are rather stable over 60 years. What Rutte, a Prime Minister in the Netherlands, is now saying looks like what was said in the 1950s when it started. There are parallels to draw between Macron and the goal. <coughs> Germany is changing, but that, that's uh, you know, from a post-national uh, uh, member state to maybe more nationalism. Italy is still looking at Europe for modernization. Spain, the same. Greece, the, 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 the same. In this sense of stability that I've been pointing out, in the way it works, this sort of, we call it polderen, eh, the polder model. We negotiate, it takes time, but things do change. The EU is pragmatic. That's the way it changes. I would not impose on such a system, the way it works, something completely else. I am afraid of the kind of tensions that you can then uh, create. Uh, maybe... Uh, just preparing this, I, I uh, contacted a, a colleague in Madrid, and uh, uh, we discussed your work. He said, "Oh, great! You know, agree with many things. Political union, you know, except the thing about the regionals." Uh, 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 so, yeah, uh, let me finish by saying that I am. No, I want to pick up your point first about. So, what do we do together, Maria? We do a hell of a lot together. We create rules. We start with working on transparency. We reform member states. We enlarge. We deal with Brexit. So uh, we have Spitzenkandidaten. We may reconsider it. Basically, fundamentally, we also formulate a lot of rules. But what we don't consider enough is how do we supervise the implementation of the rules and who's the judge? Uh, it's like the problem. Do, do we need a fully operational border and coast guard? No, we've got a system of rules. It's just the inspection on what do member states actually do needs to be improved. The, uh, what ECOFIN does is not, that's why I said we do need to change. We, need to, we do many things together, but that's why I said we need to do you know, what we do. We need to do it better. I am really reluctant to engage in discussion. I think it's dangerous to go into something 
okay, this is Europe, but let's reinvent something else. That's no, where I was I, about reinvention. I was only by one market, one country, uh, uh, one yeah. democracy okay, and so equality of citizens. Completely. Okay, so, well, so, so we, uh, yeah. I mean, Complete. We, can, we can continue for hours, but I think <laughs> we have to close now. Um, please join me in thanking uh, both Adrian and, and uh, Ulrike. It was a great discussion. Thank you.